Thanks for tuning in today for Investment Insight, and um, we appreciate your time. We've got Jonathan Burns here again today, and we're talking a little bit about Tennessee Investment Services Trust. Um, this is another one of our topics on the you know trust and estate planning and wills, and so. Jonathan, tell us a little bit about what a Tennessee Investment Services Trust is. Great. Thank you, Brent. Thank you all for having me today. So a Tennessee, I'm going to write it up here, Tennessee Investment Services Trust. It is Tennessee's version of a domestic asset protection trust. Okay. okay. Typically the the thought, the 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 rule, the mindset in most states forever has been, hey, you cannot create a trust for yourself and have the assets be protected. That's typically been the thought. When it's somebody else's stuff and trust for you, it's a different story. But when it's your own stuff and trust for yourself, typically huh. it's frowned upon to get protection. Um, but we've got a vehicle now in Tennessee and a few other states do as well where you can actually do that. You can actually put assets in a trust and get protection in almost all instances you know, from credit or issues that could pop up. Okay, and so uh, I, I guess the, the logic is what the government's trying to do is say that if they don't want you to be able to protect yourself for something you might do. Sure, sure, sure. And so this has been around by Tennessee law since 2007. Okay, so we're starting to get a, a little bit of age, you know, in this type of trust. I mean, as you've heard us talk in our other, our other calls or other uh, meetings before, you know, we've got a lot of good trust, but this is one especially uh, we're doing a ton of, okay, for clients that, um, you know, want to be able to protect their assets from just what could pop up. We'll use these, and I'll show you why here in a little bit. We'll use these a lot of times in place of LLCs, okay, okay. For real, real estate ownership to avoid some Tennessee tax that we're talking about Tennessee that we otherwise not run into. Don't LLCs, in some cases, the taxes are on the property value. You got it. So Tennessee, we'll get into those details. Tennessee, when you have an LLC and they give you, we'll call it the privilege of limited liability protection. So if you get protection for lawsuits, right. in this case, through right. an LLC, right, they'll hit you with what's called Tennessee franchise and excise tax, which the franchise tax is based on the net worth of the entity. And the tax you on the whole value of the property. Right, your equity value there. Okay. And then you've got an excise tax, which is an income tax, and an income tax of 6.5% on top of you know, what you're already paying the federal government. So we'll use these, and I'll describe it for you in a minute, how these can give us similar, I would suggest better protection than okay. an LLC, but we don't have to worry about paying that Tennessee franchise and excise tax because this is not a taxpayer you know, under the statutes that create that type of tax. But okay. This type of trust, again, been around since 2007, different from some other trusts that, we'll, that we usually talk about. This is technically upon inception, what we'll call an irrevocable trust. Okay. Okay. And I'll stress the word technically uh, for irrevocable, for how what you really think what that word sounds like. You know, words should mean what they sound like. Irrevocable sounds like it's locked in, I can't change it, it's gone. But as we'll kind of walk through the flexibility I would suggest exists with this type of trust, you still got a, a, a lot of control, a lot of flexibility, you know, to, to let it grow with you, okay. if you will. Um, any type of trust, again, has at least three types of players. You've got what's called a grantor. That's who technically creates a trust and puts okay. their stuff inside. You've got what's called a trustee, who is technically in charge of what's going on inside the trust. And again, here I'll stress the word technically. Yeah. And then you'll have also what's called a beneficiary. Okay. Or beneficiaries, right? Who the stuff is for, okay? So this type of trust, different than a few of the other ones we've talked about that, hey, it's only for married couples, right? This one can certainly be created by married couples, but also can be created by single individuals, okay? Not, okay. A, not a married couple trust um, under Tennessee law. 
Okay. Uh, but for purposes of context, I will assume that, hey, the creators of this trust, the, the people involved are a married couple, just to show you how it can work, okay? So structurally, um, we'll typically have both spouses, we'll call it husband and wife, as the beneficiaries of the trust, okay? The statute says, though, all right, to get the protection that this type of trust can provide, it says that if you are technically the one who creates this trust, right, if you're the grantor, you cannot technically be in charge as trustee. Okay, so okay? If you grant the money, you can't be the trustee. You can't, right, you can't technically hold the checkbook or you can't technically be the one that holds title to what's in the trust on behalf of the trust there. So, hypothetically, if we're talking about a married couple, we could have both spouses be the grantors, but right, if we make both spouses the grantors, they both neither can't be one, trustees. Got, neither one could be a trustee. Gotcha. So, what we'll do a lot of times, you can flip flop who does what. We'll have one spouse be our grantor spouse, have the other spouse be our trustee spouse. Okay. okay. And we'll talk about considerations why one might be there and the other in just a second, but that's our typical structure. Okay. So, the way this type of trust works, the grantor spouse is the one who puts the asset inside the trust. Okay? Right. Whenever he or she does that, he or she signs what's called a qualified affidavit. That affidavit says such things as, I'm not planning on filing bankruptcy. I'm not trying to defraud any creditors that exist right now. This doesn't make me insolvent, stuff like that. Okay? Put the asset in the trust, sign the affidavit. Yeah. Provided a creditor cannot come along within the next 18 months and prove to a judge by clear and convincing evidence that, hey, judge, I'm the reason, me, 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 I'm the reason the grantor put this asset in the trust, right? I was knocking on the door saying, pay me my money, and the next day, the grantor formed this trust to get around me specifically, okay? So I in that case, like, if, if, let's say, you do this trust, and two months later, something comes up, if it didn't happen when you did it, you're still protected. They're, right, they have to prove, again, that, hey, two months ago, Grantor was thinking about me. Good luck with that, right? It, 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 to me, it's almost, hey, you've got to be a pre-existing creditor, again, and then prove motive that, hey, again, yeah. you are the specific reason. Absent a creditor being able to prove that, the grantor gets sued for anything in the future. Yeah. Creditors can't touch what's inside the trust. Okay, so talking about, we'll call it, to describe for you, creditor up here trying to sue the grantor individually, again, unless they can make that proof within that 18-month window that they were, in essence, that pre-existing creditor, they can't touch what's inside this trust, okay? And for our example, let's say it's a piece of real estate you put inside this trust, okay? They see you individually, they can't get to that, right? So protection, initially I'll call it from the top down, right? This type of trust, similar to an LLC, is also designed to give us protection from the bottom up, okay? So what I mean by that is if you've got this piece of real estate inside of this trust, let's say it's some commercial piece of property, if somebody slips and falls here, right, they're gonna sue the owner and say it's the owner's fault. Well, in this case, it is a Tennessee Investment Services Trust. And again, just like an LLC, the owner is all that's exposed. They can't get past the trust to get to the grantor individually, right? To get what you might have elsewhere or in, you know, in your individual so, name or in a different trust. So basically, like if that. someone got hurt on this property here and I have it in a Tennessee Investment Services Trust, all they can attach it to is this property itself. Correct. They right. can't come get my other property I own. They can't come get other individual investments. They can only attach the asset they got hurt on. You got it. Right. That's all that's exposed, what that owner has, which case this is that trust with this property. So, and with, with clients that have, we'll call it multiple pieces of property, right? If we stuck all of those properties into just one trust, well, then that owner has more stuff, right? So a lot of times what we'll do, we'll have Tennessee Investment Services Trust 1, right, that owns property 1, Tennessee Investment Services Trust 2 that owns property 2, so on and so forth, right? So that you can really silo assets off from each other. So great for real estate, also certainly could be used for, we'll call it investment accounts, right, to separate them out from, we'll call it other riskier assets. 
Gotcha. Makes sense so far? It does. Yeah. And so what you're saying there is with having the one, the two, the three, if you had multiple different versions of this trust, yep. you basically, each asset would have its own protection, but because it's the same trust, in essence, you have the same rules. You got it. You got it. So right. basically you're not having to have a lot of expensive new documents. Hmm. You basically can hmm. just do one, two, three, and four. You got it. For the most part, it's oftentimes, hey, we're just changing the name, right? We're changing the name. It's a different date. It's therefore a different trust. Uh, therefore, it's again completely separate from a liability perspective, but from a legal cost perspective, it's very simple. Very simple for us to, in essence, duplicate what we already figured out in version one. And so, in that, and we talked about this before, and the benefit of that, of course, is if you were to pass away, uh, you can combine all these trusts into one. You could. Sure. There's going to be the way I'll typically draft them. There's going to be flexibility that, hey, if it makes sense to commingle assets, you could certainly commingle assets between trusts. If it's separate properties, you may still want that separation of liability with the multiple trusts, but right, if it properties are sold, now you've got, let's call it two or three, two or three trusts with cash in, right, nobody's going to trip on the, trip on the dollar bill, so you could combine all those into, you know, one trust and, you know, for what that's worth, simplicity, less trust versus more. Yeah, you've got flexibility to move things around if necessary. Okay. Okay. How's it work from a tax standpoint? Yeah, yeah, so it's structured while the grantor is living uh, to use the grantor social as is tax ID. Okay. okay, so any income that's happening in the property, if it's an investment accounting, interest, dividends, and all that, it shows up in the grantor's 1040, just like the grantor still own that income tax-wise in his or her individual name. So while the grantor's living, really simple, really simple. Uh, let me give you a little more, what I'll call color on this word, and kind of how, ir yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. irrevocable sounds like. Again, sure. it sounds like, hey, if I do this, I'm in essence giving it away. Okay, yeah, I've got a beneficial interest, but somebody else is in control. I can't, yeah. I don't have any say any longer, right? Not really the case I'd suggest for what we'll walk through next. So any trust you put in place, on the front end, you're gonna say what you think makes sense. Okay, some of that will include, right, who the initial trustee is. It'll also include, hey, who the successor trustee number one is, who the successor trustee number two is, and you can make that list be as long as you wanna be, okay? One of the rights that the grantor can retain and keep, even though technically the trust is irrevocable, is that the grantor can retain the right to remove and replace the trustee at any point in time for any reason whatsoever, right? So let's play this out. Let's say there's certainly never a reason when you want to remove the other spouse, but if the other spouse happened to pass first, okay? So the first spouse, the trustee spouse happens to pass first. Now you've got a non-spouse, okay, who's serving as your trustee. Let's say that trustee is you know, not being responsive, not listening to you, not doing what you want to do, not wearing the right color shoes, you know, whatever it may be, see you later, you're out, right? And on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. You can have that right to get rid of a trustee at any point in time for any reason whatsoever. So they're okay. not doing what you want them to do within the confines of the trust. Even though you aren't the trustee, you could basically fire them till you can find someone that does do what you want to do with Exactly them. right, exactly right. So on the front end, um, you know, you can really name what I'll call any type of person to be a trustee and be a successor trustee. Okay, doesn't matter if, if you're related, doesn't matter if you own a business, if they work for you, right? Assuming you can control what they'll do because you're signing their paycheck. You can put people you control as trustee, right? The statute says though, that the grantor kicks out everybody on that initial list, or if everybody passes away before the grantor does. Now the grantor needs to pick somebody new for him or her to be his or her trustee. The statute says at that point, okay, we cannot pick what's considered a close, close relative 
or somebody who's considered subordinate to the grantor, like an employee in the business, you got it. Uh, we'd have to pick, we'll call it a non-close relative or friend or advisor you know, to be our trustee. So close relative is a spouse, is a sibling, is a parent, is a descendant, okay? So if we want those type of people or think we might want those type of people to serve, we just list them on the initial trust document. No one can always get rid of them. You know, it turns out that's a bad idea. So still a lot of control. Again, you can set it up on the front end to be, work how you want to, but then a lot of control to get rid of the person you thought made sense to serve at any point in time for any reason whatsoever. But the caveat there is, if it's gonna be a family member or it's gonna be an employee of yourself, yep. you must name them on the original document. You're right on so point. if later on somebody becomes, an, if you didn't name somebody and they, be, and they become an employee, you still couldn't name them. Right, right, it's at that moment. That's important when you okay. don't wanna name them. You got absolutely right. So that's one right, I would say, even though tr the trust is irrevocable, some flexibility control you still get to keep. Uh, the grantor, another flexibility power, the grantor, and this is a statutory term, I'm not trying to take your job, the grantor can serve as the investment advisor for the trust. And the way we'll draft that, the trustee doesn't have the unilateral authority okay, to make investment decisions as far as selling the property or buying a new property or selling the stocks yeah, yeah, and buying yeah. all that without direction from the investment advisor, again, who is the grantor that set this trust up. So like in my case, you know, if I granted this property into that trust and I don't want them to sell it, they can't sell without my permission. You got it. So even though they're trustee, I still have a lot of control Absolutely right. of everything that happens. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And then further, I'd say flexibility you've got, you know, if we decided we wanted to do something else, okay, so hey, for whatever reason, we want to take this property out and we want to put it somewhere else. There's a better trust that's come along, you yeah. know, that makes more sense for us. Again, this trust is irrevocable, okay, so it's not like a revocable trust where if you change your mind, you just revoke it and voila, and it's on. done. But, you know, down here, as we mentioned, you know, in this case, husband and wife are both beneficiaries, right? And we may say, for example, the husband and wife can get distributions for their health, education, maintenance, and support are some typical buzzwords you'll see for, to get distributions out. So practically, okay, if we want to take assets out of the trust, you know, it's husband and wife saying to wife, hey, we want to take assets out of the trust. Wife decides, okay, that makes sense. And you distribute the assets out of the trust. So you can still get the assets out of the trust, even though it's technically revocable, it's just a distribution of principle you know, to get those assets. So in this case, you know, you, you basically pull, the trust can exist, but you can pull the money out of it. You got a lot of And so if there's no money in it, it's no good anymore. Sure, sure. So there's you, nothing the new trust yeah. would be, would work out. You got it. And then another piece of a trust, of course, is we'll, you know, we'll bake in what I'll call a lot of estate planning features, which might say, for example, you know, husband and wife are the initial beneficiaries. When the first spouse passes, it's now for the benefit of the surviving spouse. And then when the surviving spouse passes, let's say we split things you know, into equal shares, equal separate trust for the kids, okay? And a lot of times, again, what we're pushing on clients is when we leave stuff to kids, let's leave it in trust for their entire life by default, but at some age, maybe we're comfortable that we can let that child be their own trustee of the trust that is just for that child. And let's say, for example, purposes, we said, hey, you know, once a child hits, we'll call it 35, they can be the sole trustee of a trust that is just for the benefit of that child. Okay, let's say that's what we thought made sense on the front end. Life happens, all right? Things change, right? Let's yeah. say one of these kids gets married to somebody that, that, the, that the, you know, the, the clients can't stand, right? And they're worried that, hey, if my child, this child is trustee at 35, they're just gonna listen to that, you know, that new spouse and do things I don't agree with. Yeah, pull Life the money happens. out. And sure, blow sure, it. sure. So even though the trust is irrevocable, you know, we could still give you know, each spouse what is called a limited power of appointment, okay? That can be as broad or as narrow as we want it to be. But for example, a lot of times what we'll provide 
you know, for the married couple is that, hey, if things change down the road, we've still got flexibility to update what the structure looks like for the kids, even though it's irrevocable. We can't, a lot of times, add a new spouse, you know, if one of these spouses passes uh, sooner than he or she should, but we can still, you know, tweak it, fix it, if you will, you know, for what it looks like whenever it gets down to the kids. So, you know, so in essence, if I see, you know, my, my youngest daughter, Madeline's five years old, and right mm -hmm. now I've got a trust like this set up myself, and I said, well, you know, 45 is the age I wanted money, but as time goes on, I say, well, hey, I want, she's really responsible. I'm gonna give her the money at 35. Yeah, I can yeah. do that. Or yeah, I can say, could. she's not responsible. I'll give her the money at 55. You got it, you got it. Flexibility, again, even though technically the trust is irrevocable. Yeah. Now, how does it work for inheritance tax? Yeah, so this, this trust, and we'll get into in future discussions, talk about ways to get what I'll call proactive, estate tax-wise. Uh, but typically the thought is, okay, if you have a person create a trust for themselves. Okay, so if the grantor and the beneficiary are equal, if they're the same, you're not yet getting proactive estate tax-wise. Okay. okay, so whenever the grantor passes, this trust is gonna be designed you know, to use some of the grantor's estate tax exemption and try to shield those assets forevermore from federal estate tax going forward. If we've got too much stuff, okay, if this stuff is worth more than what that grantor's federal lifetime exemption amount is, if we have a surviving spouse, and we're gonna make sure we can qualify for the marital deduction and, and certainly postpone, kick the can, if you will, to pay any estate tax until that surviving spouse passes. Um, but right, when you, and we'll, talk, we'll get into more detail on proactive strategies, but this one, when the grantor benefits are equal, typically you're not yet, I'll call it, getting proactive estate tax-wise. It's best structured to plan for that once that first spouse passes, once the grantor passes, but not yet since those two things are okay. the same. Yep. So do you get any kind of step up there's no a community property trust, of course, you get a step up. Do you get that in this situation? Great question, great question. So we'll use we'll use some same you know, tax numbers we used from our previous discussion on community property. But let's say we've got an investment account or again a piece of real estate inside of this trust that's worth five hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so that's our fair market value. And let's say again this is an asset that was purchased initially for two hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so that's the cost basis. So right yeah. while everybody's living. You know, they call you and say, hey, Brent, we want to sell these stocks, right? We are paying, we've got 300000 to gain to pay capital gains tax on, right? Sure. With the community property trust, just like you mentioned, if we've got that investment account or that property inside of that trust, doesn't matter which spouse passes first, just full up. step up, right? Full step up all the way to the full fair market value. Here with this one, based on our structure, it technically does matter what happens depending on which spouse passes when. Because okay. based on who granted it? Or? It is, right? So okay. in the, when we created this trust, to get the protection we wanted to get, everything came from the grantor, okay? So if this is sometimes, for example, what I'll tell you, if this is sometimes, you know, initially the property, if it's a piece of real estate, was owned in joint name, okay? Before we put it in the trust, we're gonna do a quick claim deed to put it just in the grantor spouse's name, you know, 100%. And yeah. then the grantor spouse puts it 100% into the trust, right? But because of that, there is significance from a cost basis step up perspective. So if the trustee spouse passes first, Again, technically, he or she did not put anything in the trust. Yes, right? so they didn't give any basis. No up. basis step up, right? Gotcha. When that spouse, if that spouse passes first, the grantor spouse put it all in. Okay, so whenever the grantor spouse passes, we get a full step up all the way to fair market value. So here, right, based on our structure, we've got a bit of risk, right, about which spouse passes away. Passes so in away this first. case, like this building was in trust and I owned it first, it'd be more beneficial for me to die first. You than my it. wife, because she would get a full step up, but if she died, I would get no step up. You got it. So as morbid as it sounds, you know, a lot of times, 
it really doesn't matter you know, which spouse is trustee. On some occasions it does, but on a lot of times it really doesn't matter. So as morbid as it sounds, we'll try to think through which spouse is most likely to pass first, and we'll have that spouse be our grantor spouse, have the other spouse be our trustee spouse. And again, if we guess right, we get the full step up at the first spouse's passing. Okay. You got it. Cool. Is there anything else you can think about from uh, tax or, or you know, anything else you can think about that might be applicable to these trusts that would be good for people to know? Um, you know, I, I would just repeat the right. It, it's a, again, not something that's available. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that. Not something that's available in every state. Okay, this one, like some of the other trusts we discussed, you know, you don't necessarily have to live in Tennessee okay. to utilize this type of trust. We've got a similar, one of the similar requirements to the community property trust is that while the grantor is living, we need at least one, what's called a qualified trustee. Okay, a qualified trustee is a Tennessee resident, again, or a corporate trust company qualified to do business here. Uh, so we've got to have at least one Tennessee trustee, right? We can have as many non-Tennessee trustees as we want to, to be co-trustees with that Tennessee trustee. But while the grantor is live, one Tennessee trustee, okay? And the statute goes a little further in the Tennessee Investment Services Trust that this qualified trustee needs to do such things as, as arrange for, manage assets in Tennessee, okay? Or otherwise, you know, be involved. We talked about how the income tax return is all on the grantors, you know, under his or her social, um, his or her 1040. Another thing a, grant, a qualified trustee could do is be a part of that income tax reporting. So there's some tasks that this Tennessee trustee needs to do on this one that don't exist under the statute okay. for the Tennessee version. So I'll tell you, again, we'll do a lot of these for um, you know, clients with Tennessee property, okay? Not so much of these if we have clients that are out of state and have property out of state and that's all they've got, for example. Um, you know, for example, if we've got clients in Florida, we may not use the Tennessee Investment Services Trust if all they have is stuff in Florida. We typically want to commingle, if you will, at least something to Tennessee with that out-of-state asset. If we've got out-of-state assets, we want to protect. Okay. Gotcha. Well, this is great information on Tennessee Investment Service Trust. Just another option people have when they're looking at estate planning and liability protection. But I definitely think probably the biggest strength here is liability protection sure. is the sure. number one thing. So sure. if you're concerned about getting sued, and if you have money, you should be, um, then that's something that time to look at. But thanks for tuning in today for Investment Insight. We appreciate your time, Jonathan. Yeah, and um, thanks for watching and listening on, on um, our podcast. And have right. a great day. Thank you.